go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If today is your first time here, and a special thank you for being here as well. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 1 this morning. But last week, we started a series in which we are casting a vision for the work that The scripture sets out that God wants to do in our lives in the new year. We are more prone uh, to receiving a call to change. In January, we set all types of goals for our year. We set all types of resolutions for what we will do. Many of them have already failed. But my prayer for you is that the ones that scripture calls us to will stick this year. And you will actually have a year where you grow and change in accordance with God's word in ways that maybe you didn't even think were possible possible in your life. We're calling this series Converge because we are seeing how God wants to bring two things together in our lives to bring about real change. Last Sunday, I said we were kind of laying a foundation for the entire series where we talked about the issue of where change meets the choices of our lives, that God does want to bring real change into our lives in a continual uh, kind of path of change where we grow in our faith, we repent of sin, and we grow to become more like Christ over the course of our lives. But that's never going to happen until you realize the impact that the choices that you make in your life has on the changes that God wants to bring into your life. Everything about growing in faith and in your relationship with Jesus is about making choices in order to grow into the person that God wants you to be. And so today what I want to do is go really to the next level and deal with what I believe is one of the most unique aspects of really how we function as a church here at Village Church I want to talk about the point at which mission and doctrine converge on one another in the Christian life. From the beginning, many years ago of this church, that has been really what we have seen as a unique aspect of what sets us out and apart from many ministries and many churches. You often will find churches that are passionate about going deep in doctrine. They probe the depths of the knowledge of God, but they are often found to be short on living a mission in which they engage the world around them with the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. But on the other side, you will also find many churches that are passionate about the mission of Jesus through reaching the lost with the gospel, but they eschew doctrine as though it is the enemy of evangelism somehow. And as I was growing in faith and being trained for ministry, I personally found admirable qualities in both of these types of ministry philosophies. But what I wanted to do and what I've hoped to do over the years is kind of marry those two together and bring mission and doctrine together so that we can go deep in doctrine because of the well of life that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But also understand that our doctrine is meant to be applied to our very lives by which we engage the culture around us with hope that they will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, though they are currently unbelieving in their faith. The gospel has the power not only to change my life, but the gospel has the power to work through my life and come out of my life and into the lives of so many other people. But it is my posture and my belief that's never going to happen until I grow in my knowledge of God. Much in the way that marriage depends on you growing in your knowledge of one another. And if you get married and you're like, okay, I've learned everything about you that I want to learn about you, I'm done. It's not going to turn out very well for you, nor will that be received very well. But neither will that work in your relationship with God. 
as you grow in your life and as you grow in following Jesus, Scripture sets out a vision that you are going to grow in your knowledge of God. You are going to grow in your understanding of Him. You are going to grow in your understanding of what He has called you to do in your life. And yes, you are going to grow through that to learn more about yourself, to learn more about your capabilities, to learn more about what God wants to do through you. And so today what I want to do is cast a vision for how in this new year we can go deep in doctrine while also going very wide with our engagement with the world around us in the way that Christ himself did while he was on this earth and is patterned for us to do. One really does necessitate the other. I want to start reading in what you may find to be an odd passage for our purpose today, but my hope is that as the sermon goes on, you will understand why I chose the passage that I did because it is rich in doctrine, but it is also rich in the calling to apply that doctrine to live the mission that Jesus has for you. In 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, the apostle writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I want to pause there. Number one this morning, I hope you understand that without doctrine, you cannot know God. Without doctrine, you quite simply cannot know God. Doctrine is concerned with God's revelation of himself to humanity. You cannot know God until God reveals himself to you. And he has set forward that pattern through his word. You can know that there is a God through natural revelation, which if you want to be honest, is still a revelation from God. But you can look at the world around you, Romans chapter 1 says, and look at the seas, look at the great canyons that we have, look at the beautiful trees in the forest, and you can say, there is a creator to deny God's unmistakable imprint through natural revelation and the creation that we see all around us, Scripture says, is to become a fool. Because the fool says in his heart there is no God. There is a sufficient enough revelation of God in very creation itself for us to be responsible to that God. But here's the key. Through natural revelation, you can know that He is there. You can know that He exists. But I challenge you, you cannot know His name. You cannot know what he has done for you. You cannot know what he expects of you. You cannot know if you have failed him or if you have succeeded in the callings that he has had. So at same God that is revealed through natural creation, he's been gracious enough to specifically reveal himself to us in two ways. The first way is through his word. Beginning with the book of Genesis and working its way forward, God has made himself known through special revelation so that we can see him. The Christian worldview really answers two questions. Why am I here? And what is this all about? Everything outside of me. And the scripture makes the answers to those two questions very clear. To where we can know God. We can know who he is. We can know the Yahweh of the Old Testament. We can know the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, as he reveals himself over and over from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. But we can also know why he has made us, how he has made us, what he has put us here for, what the world exists for, how we have been called to live. But we can also know a set of bad news, and that bad news is how we have failed him. 
how he has given us from the beginning of creation very clear commands, and we have fallen short on every single one of them. But through his special revelation, we can also know something very important that is great news. That same God whom we have rebelled against and failed, that God loves us to the extent that he sent his own son to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can be reconciled in our relationship with God, thus making Jesus Christ the second revelation of who God is to an unbelieving world that can through him believe and be made whole. And every ounce of what I just said is doctrine. (laughs) And you need it so that you can know God I would put forward to you that the past few years have shown the great need for faith to be firmly rooted in the truth of biblical doctrine. I would just tell you to look back at 2020 to today in 2024. We've seen so many false ideologies prop up over those years. We have gone from the COVID hysteria where professing Christians have fallen for really what did ultimately become the God of scientism, the false God of scientism. Where it was revealed to us that our deep-seated fear of death is greater than God's revelation, that He has overcome the world, greater than God's revelation, that He has overcome the grave. We've seen through the false ideology of critical race theory and other forms of critical theories that have even invaded the church to pervert even doctrines like original sin to be only possible if you are part of the majority culture which oppresses minority cultures. And so, even if you've done nothing, you find out that you yourself are the only one guilty of original sin just by existing in a culture. We've seen various forms of intersectionality treat truth as though the more of a victim you are, the more truth you understand, whether that truth is anchored in objectivity or not. Since it is your truth, it must become the prevailing truth if you are the most intersectional in the room. And here's the key. In light of all of that, many Christians found themselves unarmed and unable to understand the times or unable to defend the faith or even be faithful in the face of all of these issues. Even now, you hear and you will hear in the coming days, many professing Christians, quote unquote, deconstructing their faith. And some will even go as far as to tell you that is a good thing, though others will tell you it is a bad thing. But here's my question. How do you know which one it is? How do you know the difference? See, ultimately, friends, the tools that you need to know what time it is in the culture around you begin with an understanding of biblical doctrine and then grows so that you can understand defending the faith in light of the many enemies of the gospel that exist in culture around us. But the key is starting somewhere. You ever been overwhelmed by how much you need to know? You ever been overwhelmed with how much you're supposed to know and you don't? I tell you, the more that I learn, the more I find out I don't know. So often people will speak of new words that I've never even heard before. And I'm responsible because I'm a pastor of knowing all of it. And sometimes I feel like there is a Mount Everest of knowledge and understanding even of the culture around me that I am incapable of living up to. And so it takes a tremendous amount of effort. And you can 
psych yourself out from ever gaining any knowledge because you feel responsible for some reason of having all of the knowledge. Well, here's the key. You'll never know everything, but you can know something, can't you? You can begin to learn somewhere. I want to look for this purpose at 1 John 2. If you listened as I was reading the text, or if you have your scriptures in front of you, if you saw it on the screen behind me, I want you to understand that this text begins with a large amount of doctrine in a very small amount of space. And I will tell you that it is incumbent upon you to be familiar with all of it if you're going to live a victorious Christian life. Look at how he begins. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So boom, right there, we've got homartiology. We've got the doctrine of sin. He's telling you something so that you will understand that you have the privilege and the potential from the hand of God through your faith in the gospel to actually be obedient to the calling of God on your life. He's saying you can avoid sin. Something that some of you do not believe you have the potential for. But the next line is as important, if not more important. He says, but if anyone does sin, whew, He knows me. (laughs) He knows that I'm not going to be able to cut it all the time. He knows that when I want to do good, I find the man of sin close at hand, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. He says, if anyone does sin. So he sets forward these two visions. He says, in Christ, you can obey God. You are not condemned in your sin. You are not a slave to sin. You have the potential to obey God. But don't be worried. If and when you do fail at that, there's the comfort of understanding Christology and soteriology. You have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation. And so you have two titles of Christ really right there because it's two things that he does. First, Jesus the advocate. Second, Jesus the propitiator. Two doctrinal terms. And so here, we not only have homartiology, we have Christology, we have soteriology. We have so much going on in this text just in two sentences. And all of it necessitates a knowledge from other parts of Scripture just so that you can understand what this part of Scripture is about. I want to talk about those two things he says about Jesus Christ because there are doctrinal terms filled with theological implications. I mean, when you see just the statement that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ is where he ultimately gets, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Number one, why do I need an advocate? Can I live without one? Secondly, why is Jesus qualified to be my advocate? Thirdly, even if he's qualified, why is he sufficient to be my advocate? What did he do to become my advocate? And what is he currently doing as my advocate, as the scripture says? So we need to understand first the condemning and destructive nature of sin from Scripture. But then secondly, we need to be able to answer all of these things about Jesus so that when we do sin, it does not devastate my faith. Because it can. It's been said that sin should make you run to the presence of God rather than away from the presence of God. And this text is saying exactly that. 
when you do sin, if you have faith in the gospel, do not believe God has cast you out because you didn't save yourself to begin with. Where does your focus need to go? The finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, the second title, he is my propitiator or he is propitiation, is the answer to how he's doing the advocacy. Propitiation is this amazing term. It means that Jesus lived life in such a way that when he went to the cross, he did not have sin of his own to die for. Therefore, he was qualified to substitute his life as a payment for those who do have sin to atone for where God is concerned. Do you have any sin? If you say no, you're lying, so that's a sin. Every single person in here has sinned against God. There is no exception to that rule. And he says, Jesus is our propitiation. In other words, you, because of your sin, deserve the righteous, fiery wrath of God for all eternity. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. And let me tell you something. I remember I've earned it. I've earned that judgment. But Jesus, in his propitiation, he made a way for me to go from God's wrath to God's favor. How did he do that? By becoming sin on the cross for me, thus taking my sin onto himself and giving me his righteousness. And so the way by which Jesus advocates to the Father for me is that when I do sin, and Satan accuses me through even my own sin that I am not a Christian. Christ and His Spirit are there to point to the cross, to point to the resurrection and say, you are no longer condemned. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thus, when He advocates before the Father, the Father looks at me and He does not see a condemned sinner. He sees the very righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And I've done nothing to earn that. I've done everything to lose that. But he gives it to me anyway. So I ask you, let me poll the audience. Are the doctrines of Jesus the advocate and Jesus the propitiator pretty important for the Christian life? I would say, yeah. So doctrine matters because not only do we learn who God is through it, we learn all that God has done for us in the gospel. And it is a growing level of knowledge by which once I learn what it means that Jesus is my advocate, once I learn that he is my propitiation, my faith in him grows, my affection for him grows, and my knowledge of just how much he loves me grows at the same time level because the gospel of Jesus is truth to be known. In Acts chapter 2 verse 42, doctrine so important that in the very first line of what the early church devoted themselves to, it says the apostles teaching. You know what the apostles teaching is? Doctrine. And we know that the early church, for the most part, if not for all of them, they knew the Old Testament very well because from childhood they had been taught the Old Testament, way more than we're taught as children in the Old Testament. But the apostles come in, and in light of everything that Jesus has done, what the apostles are doing is they're giving these early churches teaching so that they can take the Old Testament and learn 
This is how Christ has emerged as the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And here are all of the implications for your life. And we know that's true. Because after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and a little walk down the road to Emmaus, Jesus was speaking to two men. And I love the conversation that Jesus has with these two guys. Because I'm a little bit sarcastic and Jesus is very facetious. And over and over, it'll be, he'll be looking at them and be like, oh, do you not know? And I love that because basically when Jesus or any of the apostles say, do you not know in the New Testament, they're basically saying, you're dumb. <laughs> because he's saying, do you not know? Which means you don't know. And so what Jesus does is he says, look at the Old Testament with me in verse 27 of Luke 24. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He unpacked the Old Testament and said, here's where I am in it. And here's how you get to me through it. And for so many of you, you get to certain parts of the Old Testament you don't understand. You get to certain parts of the Old Testament, you know, like that's a little bit offensive. You get to certain parts of the Old Testament and say, that doesn't settle well with me. And so what is so tempting for us to do is just kind of eschew it from our lives and say, well, I don't really have time to learn all of those things. And Jesus is looking at these two guys as soon as he rose from the dead and he's teaching them exactly how it leads to him. The work is worth the effort. Therefore, when someone neglects or belittles the importance importance of doctrine in the Christian life, quite frankly, reject such a fool. Because one of two things is true of them. A, they're ignorant. And you shouldn't be led by ignorant people. Or secondly, they're a false teacher. And they're going to lead you down a dark road that will quickly turn into a road filled with error. Doctrine is what we are discipled with because it is what God chose to reveal himself through. And I'm very passionate about doctrine. You probably know that if you spend any time here. And so I could spend the next few hours talking about it, but I know that your attention span won't make it. So let's move on. <laughs> Number two this morning, without mission, you cannot obey God. See, mission is where the rubber of doctrine meets the road of God's purpose for your life. Doctrine flows seamlessly into mission and vice versa. We are not meant to just be smarter sinners, as many have said. But here's the key. I've heard that so many times. And my retort is also, we are not meant to be dumb sinners either. And knowledge really is the only pathway by which we are going to grow to understand what is it that God has designed the Christian life for me to live and how is it that the Spirit empowers me to live the victorious Christian life. I started with doctrine because without it, frankly, there is no mission. And without it, you won't know anything about the mission. People who seek to live a missional life for Jesus Christ without the doctrines of Scripture every time end up perverting the mission in some way with some form of false doctrine. Because it is God who sets the boundaries of His mission in Scripture. It is vital for us to understand that God has revealed that it is His mission and it is not my mission. One of the first places that many of us go wrong where Christian living is concerned is that we believe a gospel that is all about us. We believe a gospel that is centered on personal improvement. We believe a gospel that is about God making much of me. 
No, the gospel is about God making much of God. The gospel is about his glory. The gospel is about reconciling my relationship with him so that I can worship him in the way that he intended for me to worship and so that I can live according to the design that he has given me to live. The gospel is about God. And it is vital for us to understand that God has revealed that it is his mission. I don't get to define it. I don't get to just tack his name on whatever I want to do and call it Christian or call it gospel. I'm bound to the authority of the word of God and only there will I ever find out what his mission is because here is the fatal error that I see in so many. Is that you come to faith in Jesus Christ for the benefits but then you just go on as life as usual. You are about the same thing after you come to faith in Christ. You have the same mission as when you weren't a follower of Jesus Christ. And so if you have the same mission in life in spiritual death as you do in spiritual life, what good is the gospel? Jesus means to transform my mission. Because I now have a new understanding of life and I now have a new understanding of me and I now have an understanding of what it is that God wants me to live for. He is the authority, not me. Friends, the perfect life of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Jesus, the vicarious resurrection of Jesus have earned salvation for all who repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. That is a summary of the gospel. The mission then takes the doctrine that makes that and spreads the news of Jesus to others so that they can believe. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14, takes all of the doctrine from Romans 1 through 10 and gives us a missional command that Christians must order their lives to be sent on a mission. Paul asks a rhetorical question. He says, how then will they, speaking of those that don't believe in Jesus, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He's casting a vision, adding everything up that he's talked about in a robust systematic theology manual that Romans is from Romans 1 through 10. And then he looks at it and he says, the world needs to hear this. The world needs to know this. But they must hear it because it is not only truth to be known, it is truth to be told. That's the mission that God has given us to in all of the ways that he has gifted us, even if, and he has gifted us so differently across the crowd. He wants us to take all of those gifts and make it about his gospel. So, when 1 John chapter 2 takes the hope of Jesus' advocacy and propitiation for us and then applies it to the commands of Christ, it makes a connection that we don't often make. Look at what he says in 1 John 2 verse 3. And by this, so vital. So many of you have asked me over the years, how do I know I'm saved? How can I have assurance of my salvation? How can I be confident that God is working in my life? And what so many people want, it's almost like the Old Testament where you want me to say, go in your backyard, throw a magic fleece, and if it's wet in the morning, God's working. 
And if it's dry tomorrow, he's working. Right? And we want it to be fantastical, but it typically isn't. The scripture is usually difficult, but not complicated. He says, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. Have you set your path to obeying the commands of God in scripture? Is there a passion in you to please God in your life? He says in verse four, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's devastating. Nobody likes a liar. If you are a liar, no one likes you. So stop it. But here he's talking about the most diabolical lie. And this isn't even always a lie that you tell others. Sometimes it is a lie that you tell yourself. Now keep in mind, he's not saying you have to be perfect to believe you're a Christian. He already dealt with that, didn't he? There was a doctrine about what? Our advocate, Jesus Christ. If anyone does sin, he has an advocate. But what he's saying is, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will seek to order your life to please him in every way. And since he has revealed how he wants you to live, you know what he commands. Therefore, seek to build a life in which you are keeping his commandments. What's the difference between someone who's lying about their faith in Jesus and isn't? I have a very simple thing that I like to tell people. How do you respond when you are caught in sin? And yes, sometimes that does mean other people catch you, but here's the deal. I catch myself a lot. How do you respond? Are you belligerent or are you humbled? I will tell you more often than not, what experience has taught me is that is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. When an unbeliever is caught, an unbeliever will say, nope. You didn't actually catch me. I'm doing great. I'm fine. I don't need to repent of anything. I'm good. Let me tell you, I've been caught in sin. I've caught myself and other people have caught me in sin. And it is so devastatingly humbling because you find out you're not as strong as you thought you were. You find out you're not as great as you thought you were, you find out who the mirror is really put in front of your face. And the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit uses that moment to make you so vulnerable that the only thing you can do is grab the advocate. Christian life isn't one filled with pride. The Christian life is filled with a humble realization of how much you will always need Jesus Christ to advocate for you. But when doctrine doesn't connect to mission in that way, doctrine becomes very stagnant. You don't drink from stagnant ponds, you drink from running water. Wayne Grudem notes, great theologian, Nowhere in Scripture do we find doctrine studied for its own sake or isolated from life. Why not? Because doctrine is about life. I've met so many people who want to go deep in Scripture. 
Over the years of pastoring this church, so many people that love theology have come through the doors of a village church. And it's because of the posture that we take. We are a church that loves to go deep in doctrine. I love the Bible. I love theology. We've got a whole staff of pastors that love doctrine, that love theology, and we love talking about it. But I have people come in and they just want to wow me with theological prowess, and I'm rarely wowed. Not because I'm bright. I'm not. I am not the smartest guy you'll ever meet by a long stretch. But because I've been in rooms with people that were so smart that I needed Tylenol because it gave me a headache. I couldn't keep up. But the fact is, people will come in and they want to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But the problem with that sometimes, it's like you have a shovel and you're just digging and digging and digging and digging and digging and you hit water. Then you keep digging and digging and digging. And after a while, you're like, "Okay, I'm going to talk to somebody about it. Well, you're so deep now, nobody can come with you. The problem is, is that you looked at theology the wrong way. You looked at it as an intellectual pursuit rather than something to apply to life. And that's why sometimes theologically minded people get frustrated with me because I want to get to application as fast as I possibly can. They want to talk about myths and controversies. They want to extrapolate. They want to exegete endlessly. But these are truths that form the very mission of our lives. And so my question about doctrine is always, well, what good is it? There are no ivory towers at Village Church. I mean, this past week, they even took my office away. I don't even have an office anymore. I was praying nobody on staff took a picture of me carrying a box of my stuff out the door, getting the, getting the rumor mill going or something. I was a little bit worried, especially of Jake. I don't know about that guy. Just kidding. But these are not just endless myths and controversies to extrapolate. This is, as some people used to tell me, and pastors used to tell me all the time, this is the real stuff of life. That's the reality of the Great Commission. If you've been here any length of time, you've heard this. Jesus in Matthew 28 says, Since I have all authority in heaven and on earth, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, doing what? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That seems overwhelming. And then he gives us a great theological doctrinal good news. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In other words, it's not on you. He's going to empower me through it. We go with a purpose of multiplying our faith in Jesus into the lives of others. And we teach people to observe the teachings of Jesus. And it's so simple. Sometimes people get in this great heresy where they're like, okay, I'm going to teach them to observe everything he said. Let me find the red letters. That's a reductionistic view. I need you to understand Jesus wrote the Old Testament. Jesus wrote the Gospels. Jesus wrote the Epistles. Jesus wrote the Old, New, everything. All 66 books. It's all His Word. But we teach them to observe because that is mission and doctrine all in one place. Friend, you can't grow to be like Christ, reducing the faith to solely becoming smarter about Scripture. You can't. But... Nor can you make disciples through application apart from growing in knowledge of doctrine. It is both. 
And it will always be both. And there is, when you don't have one or the other, there's disobedience somewhere in the process. There always is. In John 10, 16, Jesus states that he came for more sheep than just the ones that are there because he wants to bring them into the fold. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Then in Luke 19.10, Jesus states that he came to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. Now make no mistake. Don't misunderstand. You are not Jesus. By the way, that's an important doctrinal principle. Don't, don't get mistaken. You are not Jesus. But how can you become like him if your mission in life doesn't align with that mission? See, Jesus is moving. And look in 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him, man, such a vital thing to understand. If you want to understand that, go home this afternoon, read John 15. Read John 15. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk. Listen to this. In the same way in which he walked. Jesus was not just a rabbi. He was not just a wise sage with pithy teachings. He wasn't just an academic instructor teaching knowledge. Jesus brought the truth so that all who believe can live and live like Him so that we could see the path that He has designed for our lives and so that we could walk in His path as he walked. What I love about that is the vision. Because Jesus is giving me more capability than I even want to believe about myself. If the scripture says it, it means that I can shoot for it. And it says, if I abide in Christ, I ought. That doesn't mean I might. That doesn't mean I may. That word ought means this is the only thing. Do this. I ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That means that God has a, is casting a vision where I can grow to become more like Christ than I even believe I can become like Christ. Do you know this? Christian, do you believe that? Because number three this morning, I will tell you, mission applies doctrine to real life. Not some pie in the sky. Not something that you can't attain. But a real life designed by a real God for you to live. The life of a Christian is ordered around Jesus' mission and there isn't another one for us. It's what we were designed for. It's why we're here. Bear with me for a moment. I want you to see how this can work out in your life. I want to look at a text 
First Peter 3.14, when we're talking about missional living, we're talking about the mission of Jesus, ordering our lives around taking the gospel to other people. This is an important text, the Apostle Peter writing. He says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's two applications there. The first one, I think, is the one you're going to be familiar with if you are familiar with this text. It's the most famous application in the field of apologetics or what is known as defending the faith. What he says is Christians must always be ready to defend their faith in Jesus. That's the most famous application of this text. But what many people pass over is there's a second application of this text that feeds into that first one. Is that Peter assumes, in the way that he writes this, that the recipient of 1 Peter has already been forming a lifestyle around the defense of faith in Jesus Christ. We know this because it begins with the assumption, first, that you are regarding in your hearts to honor Christ the Lord as holy, but then secondly, it has the assumptions that others will ask for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, your faith will be obvious in some way to many people. And then is when it lays out the posture from which the response should come. The mission of taking the good news of Jesus to others is, according to Peter, the natural posture of the Christian life. Now, I want to seek to apply this to a modern application. One that many people in Village Church have lived through. Some of you are living through this. I've had the conversations. I want to apply this to real life. What will you do when one of your kids or some extended family member says to you they are deconstructing from the oppressive construct of gender propagated by the patriarchy in the Bible, which has forced them to reject the authority of Scripture and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? You're like, ah, oh, it's not going to happen. Oh, it's happening every single day. These are the modern realities that many are going through. Defending the faith that extend to missional living. And many of you are not prepared. You are not talking about it. Always ready in that verse means you were preparing for that moment with your child or someone else long before it happens by going deep in doctrine so that you won't be flustered when you are put to the test in a real life scenario. Let me tell you, when you, don't, when you aren't ready and that happens, and you just panic and you get anxious and you're stressed and you're worried because you love that person. I can tell you, it is very difficult to answer with gentleness and respect. Because you're flustered. You don't know what to do. You're grasping at straws. Do you want to know how to always have just a natural posture of gentleness and respect in the face of difficult theological issues and answers? Always be ready. Always be ready. 
I have conversations like that all the time, and I've never yelled at anybody about it. Because I try to be ready. One more text and we'll be done. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 21, Paul makes a statement about missional living that many just use as an excuse to keep up with the latest fads. And that's not what Paul's talking about. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Okay, that last part. So what's his goal? His goal is to win more people to faith in Jesus Christ. This is about the mission. This is about Paul saying, I want to order my life in such a way that more people will come to faith in Jesus Christ because of their relationship with me. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Paul is actually advocating here for deeper understanding of how theology and culture intersect and for you being ready to engage a variety of philosophies, a variety of cultural idolatry with a pure gospel because you have studied, you have prepared, you have applied it to your life so that you could engage people with Jesus' mission. See, don't reduce that text to, well, when I'm around this group, I dress like this, I talk like this, blah, 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 blah. Sure, at some level that might be involved, but it's deeper than that. Paul is talking about evangelism. Paul is talking about apologetics. Paul is talking about being ready. He's like, I can talk about the gospel with Jews. I can talk about the gospel with Gentiles. I can talk about the gospel with pagans because I am building a life of knowledge around always being ready. Because a life of mission undergirded by depth of doctrine is how you walk like Jesus. As I said, verse 6 there in 1 John 2 gives us the goal. Walking like he walked. Doctrine is what will give your walk with Jesus depth. Mission is what will give your walk with Jesus breadth. You will know Christ and you will make Christ known to others. To follow him faithfully, you better go deep. But to follow him faithfully, you better also cast a broad net to the world around you. That's the only way you are going to endure as a Christian. Applying it to real life, living it in the world around you. Scripture teaches us God is glorified as sinners get saved. He loves to save sinners, of which I am one. But we must also go the next step. Not only does God have a vision for saving them, God has a vision for discipling them in doctrine and mission. And that is our purpose in this world. Living it requires mission and doctrine applied to real life. A few application points this morning. First, learn deep doctrine in order to know God. Don't avoid 
the difficult passages of Scripture. Don't avoid the tough parts of theology and doctrine. Go deep in your understanding of God so that you will know Him more. Order your life, number two, around the mission of Jesus. Don't order the mission of Jesus around your life. It doesn't work that way. Thirdly, apply doctrine to a life of mission. Now, the problem with that is, is that it assumes you're learning doctrine to apply to it. And some of you will say, but I'm not a reader. Well, we already covered that. He revealed himself in a book, so you should probably read it. So, those of you that say, I'm not a reader, well, welcome to day one of being a reader. <laughs> this is how God is known. Read it. Fourthly, walk the path of Jesus and see what God will do through you. Just see what he'll do.